Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Acts chapter number 8. I do have a calendar up on the bulletin board now. It has times and things that are going on this month. If you want to go back there and look at it, walk away from it, forget it, and go back and walk and look at it again. Come next service, had forgotten it, and look at it again. <laughs> Sister Sharon, you nod in your head as though maybe that just sounds perfectly right. <laughs> Amen. Acts 8. We begin reading with verse number one here this evening. It's a good place to start, verse one. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Just a reminder, we just finished with Stephen being stoned. So Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hallowing and hailing rather men and women committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. This evening, our lesson, part 20 of our Acts series, I want to speak to us on this. Great persecution, great power. Great persecution, great power. Let's go to the Lord to prayer right now. Father, we come to you now. Amen. Everyone say amen. 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 You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. Great persecution. Great power. Again, from a few weeks ago in Acts 7, Stephen being the first martyr of the early church, we understand that there is a character that's coming on the scene and has been introduced to us 
here and there with the story of Stephen, one by the name of Saul. Saul was there when Stephen was stoned. The Bible even tells us in Acts 7.58 that Saul allowed the witnesses that were against Stephen to lay their clothes at his feet. Saul, therefore, was endorsing Stephen's death as though he was a man that should have died. Saul, though, according to the Scripture in his portfolio, he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is a Jewish man. And Saul, we must understand at this particular juncture in his life prior to his conversion, Saul was like many even today. Saul sincerely thought he was right in what he was doing. Saul sincerely thought by persecuting those who preached Jesus, he was doing what was right and what was proper for his quote-unquote religion, for Judaism. Verse 3 even tells us, though, that he made havoc of the church. Verb there, havoc, meaning that it's describing him as a wild animal that's mangling its prey, and it probably does well in that description. He made havoc of the church. Uh, he's always treating these Jesus believers as though his prey in different places throughout Acts it describes that he persecuted both men and women, not just one more than the other, but both men and women, unto death even. He entered the houses. He entered the synagogues, pulling them out. He imprisoned some of them. He beat some of them. And as I said, ultimately, he killed some of those believers. But again, Saul thought, you've got to understand this. Saul thought he was being pleasing to God all alone while he was doing these things. But he was just wrong. He thought he was doing what was pleasing to God, but he was wrong in what he was doing. In Saul's mind, he thought anyone that was preaching Jesus was preaching about another God. He thought anybody that was preaching and teaching about Jesus was preaching about another God, and that went totally against his Jewish upbringing. That went totally against the Old Testament teachings about there being one God. They were a monotheistic people, and to introduce this Jesus Christ, Saul thought that they were introducing another God. But what Saul really needed was a revelation. What Saul really needed was a revelation that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. He needed to see that God was in Christ, which he'll come to terms with in the next chapter, and that revelation will happen for him. But the episode here in Scripture of Saul believing that he is standing for doing right and yet wrong, what, he's ha what we have here in Scripture, this episode is really replayed time and time again in our society today. Amen. Because there are many people who love God, love God, and uh, believe that they are doing right. If I can even get it like this, there are even some that, in a certain, certain sense of the word, are persecuting others that love God. That's what Saul was doing. He loved God, and he was persecuting somebody else that loved God. And he thought he was right by doing so based upon his revelation of truth. So we have the same scenario over and over today. There's people all across this nation. You ask that they love God, they love God. And there'll be those people that will speak wrongly or unkindly about other people that love God based upon their perception or understanding of truth. Amen. That's where Saul was. It wasn't until he received his revelation about who Jesus really was, that he understood that the way that he conducted himself before concerning other people that loved God, that in actuality he was wrong to do that because they were right 
and he was Rome. That's where we are today, folks. We are in a, a, a struggle even within the Christian world, the Christian society. Others saying, well, they're not right. Others saying, well, they're not right. And that one saying, they're not right. The only thing I got to go off of is this right here. Amen. And this is the truth of God's word. Somewhere along the line, our prayer is this, that some would receive the revelation of really who Jesus Christ is and was. That he was the almighty God that was manifested in the flesh. And that whenever I prayed to God, I prayed it all. Whenever I prayed to Jesus, I prayed it all. Whenever I prayed in the spirit, I prayed it all. That I don't have to divide that three ways, two ways. I can just make one way. And so it's really not much different. Saul thought he was right, doing what was right, but he came to an understanding by revelation that he was incorrect. And the fact of the matter is this, Saul was very sincere in his pursuit. Yes, he was. I mean, he's doing the best that he can do. He's thinking to do what was right. Amen. Even persecuting the known church or others of the apostles, thinking he was doing right. He was doing everything that he knew to do and everything that he believed in, but he just needed a revelation of the truth, explained to him an explanation of truth that was unknown to him to be made known unto him. Right. So we can't fault some people because they're doing all they know to do. They're doing all they know to do with the truth that they got. But what they need is someone to turn a light on. What they need is somebody that has the totality and the understanding of truth to be a mirror of truth for them. That a revelation from heaven. They need an explanation of the truth that's unknown to them. Now look, the Bible says, look, look at the encounter. Uh, uh, for Saul, for Saul... It took a God encounter to bring this revelation. In Acts 9, we'll get to that weeks from now. But for Saul, it ultimately took a God encounter for this revelation. But before Saul ever had his God encounter, God may have tried to influence him and bring a revelation through a dedicated man of God. If you'll remember back in Acts 6, uh, verses 9 and 10, whenever Stephen were, was going around and he was in an area of Sicilia, you'll remember the Bible says that he disputed with some people of that area and we entertain the idea that possibly Saul could have been one that he even disputed with, but nevertheless, these ones that he disputed with, the Bible says were not able to resist what Stephen was saying, his wisdom or the spirit in which he said it, Saul very well, Tarsus, Tarsus is in Sicilia, it's, it's in this area, amen, and Saul was of Tarsus, he may have been, I'm saying may have been, I have no concrete evidence, but he may have been one of those that had disputed with Stephen, and may have not been able to resist what Stephen was saying, and although he was not able to resist it, he wasn't though in a position yet though to accept it either. You can sometimes witness to people and they won't be able to resist the truth you're talking about, but they're not willing to accept what you're talking about either. There's got to be a good marriage of knowing that what's being said is true, but then also accepting it as true. Amen. Happens over and over, time and time. Again today, people, other Christian people may resist what you say, or they might not resist what you say. But the fact 
of the matter is they might not be ready to accept that truth. That truth they can't deny. They might not be ready to accept that truth they can't deny. Because here's the reason many times. Because it requires another level of accountability for them. You hear me? They might not be able to deny it. But they don't want to accept it. Because if I accept that, then that requires something of me. And although it may be true, if I can just keep pushing that distance, then I can just stay comfortable right where I'm at. Oh, someone just give me a nod. I'll accept that. Just give me a nod. Amen. And so that's where we are. Amen. That's where they were, and that's where we are. History does repeat itself. The Bible even bears that out. That's where we were, and that is where we are today. And so then from that, here is Saul. He's a then grand proponent of being a persecutor of the church. And whenever we even just mention the word persecution, people start hiding under the pews and finding the rock to climb under. Uh, you know, some people said, I've had my share of that. I got a doctorate in persecution. Talk about persecution. There's all kinds of negative connotations that come about whenever you start saying persecution. It's like, ooh. Amen. Because on the surface, the persecution of the church, on the surface, man, it, it seemed to be, you know, suffering. It had a, had a negative effect upon the church. I mean, because of the persecution that's happening in this hour, the Bible says that the church that originally started there at Jerusalem, it didn't stay totally intact, that people started dispersing from Jerusalem now and being scattered into regions throughout Judea and Samaria. And so all of this happened because of this persecution that's coming up on the church. People say, man, that's horrible that the church is dispersing. That's bad that all this is taking place. But when we hear that they're scattering to Judea and to Samaria as a result of persecution, there's something that begins to toll over in our mind a little bit again and say, wait a minute, this persecution is actually helping the plan of God. This persecution is actually helping the purpose of God. God's working this persecution for his good. Because if we go all the way back to Acts chapter number 1 and we read verse number 8 again, and Jesus tells to his disciples, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. They've been doing that for a while now, but, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Wait a minute. We've had this nice little nucleus in Jerusalem, and we've been having church. We've been winning souls. The Bible said they had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine, but now, amen, persecution has come, and as a result of persecution now, they're scattering, and they're getting into Judea, and they're getting to Samaria. What are you talking about tonight, Brother McGee? I'm saying this. Sometimes God uses persecution when we get comfortable in order for us to take the next step. Not every persecution comes because I've done something wrong. Persecution sometimes comes because I've not yet done what I've needed to do and it somehow conflicts me and causes me to take a step in the next direction, the next level. God said, I'm not satisfied with you just being in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria need something, but I see right now I'm going to need a little persecution to come down. Whenever things like that happen in your life, and I've tried to teach this and preach this before, whenever bad things happen in your life, you need to ask yourself, why is this here? 
Because we can't always say, this is here because you did something bad. We can't always say, this is here because the devil did it. We can't always say, this is here because God. It, could it be here? Maybe perhaps because he's trying to make me uncomfortable where I am. Or maybe he's trying to get me back somewhere where I once was. We put these big labels sometimes whenever problems happen or a different health, it's all these different things. You say, that's what it is. No, 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 no. You need to back up and you need to evaluate why is this here? All right. Come on. Why is this here? And so the persecution, amen, in that hour, on the surface it looked like because there's just this tyranny of Saul going around, you know. And he's, he's persecuting. But the real, real undercurrent matter of the situation is God was using what seemed evil on the surface for his good. And the church was being dispersed to Judea and Samaria, which is exactly what he wanted to happen. In other words, listen, folks, it's a God idea when persecution spawns evangelism. There are times... In our personal lives, and there are times in the life of churches, this church, that God has to stir the nest, so to speak, in order for his people to fly. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, speaking about that phraseology, the stir the nest, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11 and 12, uh, the Lord is speaking here uh, through the writer. He says, as an eagle stirreth up her nest. Fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, speaking of Israel, or that which is in the nest, but he was speaking concerning Israel, beareth them on her wings. So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He's saying as the eagle does that to her nest, so God is trying to do that to the nation of Israel at this particular time. He is stirring up the nest, fluttering above them. In other words, he wanted Israel to become discontent so Israel would spread its wings and fly. I like like what Charles Spurgeon said about it. He said, the eagle, when it's young, are fit to leave the nest, will not let them remain idle, but disturbs them, entices them to try to get their, them to try their wings. And that was the story of that was the story of the Israelites in Egypt. There's hard taskmasters while they're in Egypt. That was more than just to increase the difficulty of the laborers. There were the plagues that toward the end were coming upon Egypt. That was more than just to distinguish between what was his people and what wasn't his people. Both the hard taskmasters. And both also with with the plagues that came upon Egypt. All of that was put in place with a purpose to prompt Israel to cry out and not be satisfied with being in Egypt anymore. That was so that they might lift their voice. These things, plagues and the hardship, all of that was nothing more but tools to cause Israel to want to move forward, move out of Egypt. It was, if you will, the proverbial stirring of the nest because we understand in scripture they grew comfortable to Egypt they liked their houses they liked their homes they liked the food yeah they weren't liking this taskmaster stuff very well they weren't like making bricks without straw what were you doing God I want you to become uncomfortable I want you to become uncomfortable even if it means some hardship And yet the Bible tells us, and I don't, I don't have this up here, but the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter number, number 2, 
that the more that they were persecuted, verse 7, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. This is Exodus 1. Increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And so then we had that new new king that, that, uh, uh, that comes over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And the Bible says, look what he says in verse 9. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. And yet we skip further down, and what did they do? They put taskmasters over them in verse number 11. They afflicted them with burdens. And verse number 12 says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more that they grew. Their persecution did nothing more but bring more power. And here's the moral of the story. Even in their moment of being persecuted, by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the Bible says at that point in time before it even started happening, they were more and mightier than who was holding them captive. We feel the persecution come upon us and we think, man, I'm weak. No, no, no. Persecution came on Israel because the enemy already seen they were stronger than what they were. And God seen that they were too. But he says, you got to do something to get out of where you are. Someone say amen. So they wanted them to feel uncomfortable. And so negative things sometimes enter our lives. Amen. Stern of the nest. God wants to see you fly. God wants to see you fly because he created you for flight. Now look what happens though. Look what happens here in Acts 8 when the nest Get stirred. Philip issues forth from Jerusalem and is scattered. Philip leaves the nest whenever the nest gets stirred, when persecution comes. Now, the Philip that we're talking about, we're not talking about Philip the disciple or Philip the apostle. We are talking about Philip, who is one of the seven from Acts 6 who along with Stephen was placed over the daily ministration of the Grecians and the Jews with the waiting on tables. I know that because in Acts chapter number 8 and verse number 1, the Bible talks about those that are scattered abroad throughout Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And so this Philip that's going to Samaria is an apostle because according to the word, all the apostles remained at Jerusalem. And so this is the Philip that is one of the seven, not the Philip that is one of the twelve. But this is the man. Look at me now. This is the man that was given the job description and the responsibility with the daily ministration, the serving of tables. That was his responsibility. The Bible describes him just as it described all seven of those guys, that they were of an honest report. They were full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And so we have this Philip here that has all of those character traits and was given the responsibility of waiting on tables yet now because of the persecution he has left that estate and now started to be we see the terminology given to him or the label given to him later he has turned into an evangelist Mm -hmm. because in Acts chapter number 8 he's operating now in a capacity beyond what he was in Acts chapter number 6 And so here's what I just, uh, uh, my mind thinking here today. Could it be that Philip just needed that little shove? 
from the Philip that waited on tables, he needed that little shove to be able to become the Philip that would evangelize other cities and towns and see miracles, signs, and wonders and people born again of the water and of the Spirit. Maybe he was getting comfortable with just making sure the Grecians had enough and the Jews had enough. What are you doing? I'm just doing my daily obligations because you can get comfortable in whatever your responsibility is in church life. That you set up your mailbox and this is what God called me to do as though God could never call you any higher or any further. And so Philip's waiting on tables. This is what I'm going to do. Hey Amen. Maybe God was already trying to pull on his heart to go, but he wasn't going to go. God says, all right, I'll stir the nest. I'll stir the nest. And so as a result of the stirring of the nest, Philip, who was just a waiter on tables, amen, which is no doubt honorable in its respect, but it was just a stepping stone. It was just a stepping stone for what God was going to have for him. And now he is evangelizing in Samaria. Someone say amen. Amen. (laughs) He becomes the evangelist. The Bible, Paul speaks of him later in Acts 21 and verse 8. Uh, Paul, this is whenever Paul was on his journey to Jerusalem and uh, there had been a lot of people telling him, Paul, you're going to be bound there. You're going to suffer many things, but he was continuing anyway. And the Bible says in that journey, the next day, Acts 21, 8, the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea and we entered to the house of Philip, the evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. Philip was a distributor of bread in Acts 6. But now he's a a, a distributor, if you will, of spiritual bread. Not only that, you look back at Acts chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Through the hands of Philip, now miracles. People with unclean spirits were delivered. Those with palsies and lamenesses of their bodies were healed. I don't see the result of that in Acts 6, but I do in Acts 8 because God sent persecution. But with persecution, it sometimes stirs the nest and produces great power. And now all these things are happening by the hands of Philip. Now, now look at this. So there is a positive, there is a positive impact. It's a positive impact as a result of all this. Amen. Whenever the people began to scatter. Uh, It was positive because we note in Scripture, the Bible tells us in verse number 4 of Acts 8 that as they scattered, they went everywhere preaching the word. They went everywhere preaching the word. It's positive. Their scattering is positive because they didn't allow that cause them to clam up their mouth or stop ministry. But they just decided that ministry was good for wherever they went. The moral of the story is this. Never stop being a representative of God. Never stop sharing his word just because your location has changed. Never stop just because your environment becomes different than what your environment was. The stories that involve Philip are just really one recorded count of one person of those that were scattered. It says all these people were scattered, but we really only get a story here of Philip, one of the ones that were scattered. One of the ones that continued to preach everywhere. If we could have the story of every individual that was scattered in the process, Acts would probably be a way, way longer book of the Bible than what it is. But these are just one of the stories. And it's in these stories 
We read his we read his interaction at Samaria, the city of Samaria. The Bible says he went to Samaria to preach. And we read his interaction out in the desert with one eunuch. It's in these stories through the life of Philip that we realize that evangelizing one soul is just as important as evangelizing a whole city. Through the life of Philip. Amen. And I... It might go without saying, but I'll, I'll say it, and then I'll re-say it, and then I'll go to the Old Testament, bring a story in, and say it again. The evangelism of one person is just as important as the evangelism of a city. We see the story of this told in the Old Testament. During the time of the Judges and in the book of Judges, that time where the Bible describes it was a time that there was no king, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It's a sad story to say the least because as you read the book of Judges, you are just kind of blown off your rocker that some of these people that are supposed to be called God-fearing people are doing what they're doing. But when you realize the footnote at the end of the chapters, every man did that which was right in his own eyes, you can understand that these people are doing what they're doing because they're just doing what seems right to them. And so all of this is taking place. And what we have here is a story. We see that there is a priest in the book of Judges. That is taken, yeah, man of God, that is taken by this misconception that ministering to the masses was better or deemed more important than just ministering to one. Now, first of all, let me just rain, lay the groundwork for you. The priest was ministering. This is judges now. Everybody's doing what's right. No, he was ministering in a corrupt household of Micah. There's a man by the name of Micah that has uh, hired or asked this priest to come and serve in his household. This guy decided that he was going to start having church at home. That's really the gist of it. Decided he was no longer going to the temple, that he'd just have house church all by himself. And so in the process of doing so, I'm going to hire me a priest, come in, we can have church. And so I understand this is a corrupt household here. Amen. It didn't get much better. <laughs> uh, his environment didn't get much better when he left Micah, the one man in his household. He went then with 600 men of the tribe of Dan to be the priest over the tribe of Dan. This is still very bad. It's during a corrupt time. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. But the point that I'm trying to convey is within the context of the scripture. Judges 18 and verse number 19. The Bible says, and they, the Danites, these 600 men, Come to Micah's house where this priest is and say unto him, that is the priest, hold thy peace, lay thine hand upon thy mouth. In other words, don't say anything. Go with us and be to us a father and a priest. And they pose the question, is it better for thee to be a priest unto the house of one man or that thou be a priest unto a tribe and a family in Israel? Look what verse 20 says. And the priest's heart was glad. Look at the very last phrase. And went in the midst of the people. This priest, of course it's a corruptible time. But this priest had sold out to the concept and the idea. That it was better to be the priest over many. Than just to be the priest over one. He was saying it was better to have the interest in the masses. Than it was to have the interest in just one. He was thinking it was much better to serve in a public form. Than it was in a private form. Someone say amen. But the fact of the matter is this, folks. One soul is just as important as a city full of souls. And that our ministry that takes place in private is just as important as the one that takes place in public. 
A home Bible study is just as important as preaching behind a pulpit to a congregation full. Yeah. To a congregation full of people. Amen. We should not, as this priest did, accept the large crowd at the expense of the one. Someone say amen. Because that's Philip later in scripture. Christ says, I got one out in the desert. But revivals happen in the city of Samaria. On the left, on the right, man, there's more than one getting the Holy Ghost and being baptized. But Christ says, I need you to go. We don't see him bargaining with God. We don't see him rejecting God. Christ says, go. And the Bible says he arose and he went. Because he understood that one was not better than the other. That everybody needed an opportunity for salvation. Everybody needed an opportunity to be evangelized. And so we can do the same. Whether it's one or whether it's many. They are all valuable in the sight of God. We can be just like Philip. Amen. Acts 8 and verse 9. The Bible says, but there was... There's Philip, he's in Samaria. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard. Because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Now, Philip ministering. I'm going to touch two points and I'll close. I have long points. Like the horns of a gazelle. This ministry endeavor to the city of Samaria was an awesome feat for anyone, but particularly for two different reasons. First of all, Samaria, this is going to be real profound, Samaria was where the Samaritans lived. And until the time that Jesus in John 4 said to his disciples that I must needs go through Samaria and actually stayed there for a couple of days, as recorded in John 4, Samaria, until that time, had virtually been off limits for the Jews. They had a direct route to Galilee through Samaria, but normally people would go around Samaria to avoid Samaria until Jesus went there in John 4 and said, I must needs go through Samaria. The Samaritans even knew that they were the outcasts. The Bible tells us in John 4 and 9 on that meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well, then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, speaking to Jesus, that is, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For she says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It was not something under the rug, something that they didn't know about. They knew that they were by, according to the Jews, the outcasts, if you will, of the world. And Jews tried to refrain from going to have any dealings with the Samaritans. And the reason why this little sore spot of contention ever came is in the Old Testament, there was a time that the nation of Israel were split into two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom and there was the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had its captive 
its cap, its place, its city of, of, of renown being in Samaria. Amen. The, the, the southern kingdom had its places uh, of renown being Jerusalem. And, and the southern kingdom was just made up of two tribes. It was just Judah and Benjamin. And the northern kingdom was all the other ten tribes. This is just a little Bible history for you. Maybe we'll put some things together next time you read your Bible. There came a captivity to the northern kingdom first. By the Assyrians. The Assyrians came and took all of the ten northern kingdoms captive. Amen. Usually when they would take the people, they would replace some people in those cities that were not Jews. And in the southern kingdom, a little later, the Babylonian captivity, you've heard me talk about that, came later. And they took all of the southern kingdom away. Well, in the book of Ezra and of Nehemiah, whenever finally the decree is given by the king that Judah and Benjamin, those southern kingdom tribes, can return back home and build their tabernacle and build their edifice, and they do back at Jerusalem. They start to do that. If you read in Ezra chapter number 4, there's some people, and if you study it out, they are from Samaria that come and say let us help with the work your God is our God let us help from the, with the work and it's some of these Jews that had intermarried with some Gentiles and brought about the Samaritan people half Jew Samaritan was half Jew and half Gentile now these of the southern kingdom said no we don't want you amen to help with any of these matters because you're not a purebred like you once was you intermarried and when you intermarried in the Old Testament you took on the gods then of your spouse. Yes, right. So it was more than just marrying with somebody that was not of their sect of people. It was because they were going to take on the gods that were not of their people. And so, no, you might believe in our God, but you believe in our God and then some. So we don't, have, we don't want to have no dealings with that. And so here's the crux. This is a big thing. That Philip is going into Samaria that were once refused to even help build the temple back up. To come into Samaria where these half Jews, half Gentiles are. But you must understand, whenever Philip went to the Samaritans, he was creating a bridge for the Gentiles by just going to the Samaritans. Because if God was willing to accept a half Jew, half Gentile, perhaps he'd be willing to accept a full-blooded Gentile. Hallelujah. In other words, if someone would extend a hand to somebody that's half and half, perhaps there is hope for him to extend a hand to somebody that's a full-blooded, non-related Jew altogether, a Gentile nation. Now, that don't excite you, but what that means is that this. Philip, going to the Samaritans, opened the door for us. We're all Gentiles. We're not of the Jews because he went there. He was biting off a lot to chew because God stirred his nest and he went forth with power. He goes to a Samaritan city that is ostracized and they're half Jew and half Gentile and that's going to fly open the door for all Gentiles to be able to have salvation through Christ Jesus. That means me. Now, That's the first reason why this is a major feat for Philip going to Samaria. The second reason why this is a major accomplishment ministering in Samaria is this. Because God's message was making inroads and changes 
among people influenced by satanic power. It is no wonder that it leads with the scriptures leading to this occurrence with Simon that there were those that were possessed with unclean spirits that were crying out but were healed because the whole city of Samaria had been bewitched by Simon the sorcerer. And listen, whenever it says Simon was the sorcerer, it was not that he was using sleight of hand. All right. He wasn't using sleight of hand, and he wasn't, as we call in the churches when they have their magic shows today, he wasn't doing an illusion. That wasn't real. He was being, Simon was being used by Satan to do things in the eyes of the people that were driven by a wicked and an evil spirit. Someone hearing me right now. So the inroad into Samaria, this happening, is a big thing. Because God is laying his ruts down a path where there had been satanic influence before. Of course, in my life, I just want to, sh- can I share a couple stories? I'm not here to scare the kids, but if it is, shut their ears. But I was, a couple of stories that I had had in my life, not personally, but there were some missionaries that were to Taiwan and China called the Bracken family and they would oftentimes go into mainland China and minister the word of the Lord there they would go to villages there and they would preach the word of the Lord and uh, they spoke their whole family spoke very fluent Chinese they they had uh, learned and had adapted the language and, and they would preach in Chinese and witness in Chinese and so they spoke very fluent Chinese and uh, there were two teenage Chinese girls one time when they were preaching, and as a result of the preaching of the word of the Lord, uh, these two Chinese teenage, mind you, girls received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And uh, they did uh, what a new convert should and ought to do. Man, they just started reading their Bible. And they would read their Bible, and in the process of reading their Bible, they read in the Gospels, Brother Fred, how Jesus Christ sent his disciples out two by two. And so they got the notion to take God at his word. And so the two of them started to go out just the two of the, these two teenage girls, they started to go out to other villages and remote areas in the mainlands of China, and they began ministering the gospel of the Lord Jesus in these areas that they were going, two teenage girls. And so whenever they would enter a village, they would ask uh, the village people, whenever they entered that town, they would ask, what is the main problem here? And whenever they were told, those two girls would start to preach against that problem, minister against that problem, And they would speak then the gospel in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in their preaching and their teaching. And in one village they were told, they came into and they asked the same question, what is the problem here? The village people told them, said the problem here is that in our village is a male witch. He said, and that male witch controls everything that goes on within our village. No one can enter this village and no one can leave this village without his permission. Those two teenage girls looked at the village people and said, you take us to him. They said, oh, oh, oh. no, we're not going. We're not going that direction. We're not taking him. No one can go there. You're not, you're not supposed to go there. We cannot. And they began to speak back and forth and said, no, you need to take us there. And so they finally agreed. The village people said, okay, we'll take you to where he lives. But 
That's as far as we're going. We're backing away. We'll show you where he lives, but we're going no further. And so the village people took to where he lived, and then they began to back away. And uh, as the story was told and goes, I don't know uh, if evidently that man, which in his house felt those two that were filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost enter his domain or his territory, but he came out of his house, and he came running toward them, and they threw up their hands in the air and said, In the name of Jesus Christ. And that man froze in his movement and could not move anymore. And all these villagers then came running out to them and they said, tell us about this Jesus. We want to know about this Jesus. And before they were done in that village, they baptized every single individual in that village in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was told several years ago in a meeting where uh, Brother Stone King was ministering. He told that he was at a conference in Louisiana. He met a couple of Amers, that's associates in missions, uh, people that go over and help missionaries, and they r- regularly are part of the states, but they go over maybe for a few few months to help uh, the missionaries, perhaps while they're gone, so on and so forth. But associates in ministries, they in missions, they wanted to tell uh, Brother Stone King a story, and they said they had been making uh, ministering and making some inroads into villages there in South America, and they said in one village that they. Uh, had visited there was a woman a woman witch again that had control of everything within their village and they relayed that as they were walking down the path uh, entering this village they noticed a tree along the path that was very big it was very tall and from every branch on the tree there had been feathers hanging there or bones that were hanging there from the tree to later find out that there at that tree there had been sacrifices made to this woman uh, who was a witch in that city People made sacrifices to her because of her power and her prestige, evidently, amen, as being a witch. And so as they passed that tree, again, this woman, which was a witch, felt their presence entering into that village, that domain, that principality, if you want to call it that. And they came, uh, she came from where she was, and she liked the other one. She came running toward them, and again, they threw up their hands, these aimers, and said, in the name of Jesus, And they said whenever that happened, the woman fell to the ground and that these couple ran to her and began to pray with her. And when it was all said and done, that woman received the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. And these are these two aimers. They said when she began to speak in tongues, that tree burst into flames and burnt to the ground. I said that to say this. This is a big thing for Philip and the early church because they were starting to make inroads in places where satanic power had formerly been. The Bible even tells us in verse number 9, the Bible emphasizes that Simon, but there were a certain man, Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery. The very same Samaria, there had been a man, Simon, who had used sorcery in that city. People in that city had been awed by the satanic ventures that were now, now because of Philip in the presence of God, they were being awed by the presence and the power of God. Before, they had been taken back by the allurements of Satan but now they were be delivered by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the reality of Jesus Christ amen those people had fell into believing Simon was someone great 
that he had great power, that he had that they had a high regard for Simon. Amen. But they had been under the manipulation of his sorceries for a long time. But look at Acts 8 and verse number 12. They've been under his, his, his hand for a long time, his sorceries for a long time, his manipulation for a long time. But the Bible says here's the turning point in verse 12. But, everybody say but. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Can I tell you tonight, can I tell you tonight, amen, a moment of belief in the word of God and a moment of belief in the name of Jesus can change the dynamic of a long-time oppression any day of the week. So it's a big thing because now the Gentiles have a path by the bridge of Philip, what he's making. And now the satanic forces of that day and that world, God is making inroads through those towns and through those cities by his spirit and by his power. He's not just shown by miracles. He has power over the physical body. He's shown by his miracles. He has power over the spiritual man as well. Someone stand with me here this evening. But when they believed Philip in his preaching, the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, the environment of the city began to change. The environment of the city began to Great persecution, but great power. Stirring of the nest, but was a repositioning of the people. Exactly where God had foretold for them to be and to do and to accomplish. So next time you feel uncomfortable, ask yourself, what am I supposed to be doing? (laughs) What am I supposed to be doing with this discomfort level? Why is this here? If I brought it on myself, is the devil brought this on me? Or has God brought this on me trying to prompt me to do something? Sometimes trouble comes to try your faith. Sometimes trouble comes to get you to praying again. Sometimes trouble comes because life is just like that. Trouble comes. And other times trouble comes because it wants you to push back the plate and do some fasting. Please don't come to me and say, Brother McGee, what is, which one is it? Examine yourselves. Now, for maybe some, I might be able to call that out real easy. Oh, God, help me. I'm almost about ready to go into meddling. Hell yeah. Let's bow our heads in this place here this evening. Oh, mighty God, mighty God, mighty God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.